Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk right now um, about what's going on in the world of cannabis. Alex Pasternak joins us. He's the executive vice president of Binsk, and he can talk to us about um, the market and the future. It's it's interesting, Alex, because I was just in New York City for a few weeks, and I started to see these cannabis stores popping up. They weren't selling real weed yet. It was like Delta 8 THC, which I guess is kind of a knockoff, slightly legal version of legit THC, but it'll come. And I wonder how, how you expect this market to develop. Is it going to be like the liquor market developed? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for, uh, first and foremost, thanks for having me today. Um, I would say that the liquor market is going to be, uh, you know, a little bit of provides a little bit of insight for us in terms of as legalization continues to roll out and, and how they do it. You'll see differences uh, in terms of the distribution models in particular in some states that, that are, uh, you know, share some of the characteristics that you see on the liquor side. Um, but altogether, no, I, I think cannabis is going to prove to continue to be its own, um, its own product category that takes a few, few things in particular from the liquor segment. But no, I, I, on its own, I think it's going to be completely different, to be honest well, with you. Of course, the liquor market has been legal for so long. Um, I guess the cannabis cannabis was legal for a long time before anyone figured out what it really was, but it's been uh, fairly well demonized in the U.S. How do you go about now in this kind of quasi legal state sourcing and selling weed? Is it are you looking over your shoulder all the time, depending on which state you're in? Great question. No, actually, we uh, we're able to sleep pretty well at night over here. Everything we do is fully legal. We only operate in legal territories. So even though it's federally still illegal, um, as you all know, it was deemed an essential business during the pandemic. So the the idea of having concerns at this point um, are, are long gone. And it's proven by the fact that you see more and more investors entering the space on a daily basis. So the risk factor is almost fully mitigated at this point. And no, we are only operating in legal territories. Uh, on the liquor comparison, as you compare it to, there there are some things to look at. For example, I could go into a liquor store today and buy 50 handles of vodka and, and six kegs and no one says a word to me. But in most legal territories, I can only buy eight edibles or an ounce or two of flour. So there's major uh, compliance and, and regulatory issues that we're still battling through here. Alex, you mentioned uh, federal uh, legislation here, federal approval. Give us a sense of where you think that is and, and, and how that may evolve. Yeah, great question. Um, look, I'm a big numbers guy, engineering background, geek out on data and science in particular. There's 19 recreational states and 36 medical, 19 and 36. It doesn't take an engineer to understand that there's really no turning back at this point. Full legalization is imminent. At the federal level, look at the latest proposals by the Schumer bill and progress on the SAFE Act in, in Congress. I mean, there's just too much money on the table for the private and public sectors, particularly the government. Putting aside the money, there's two other major factors that I want to address. Number one, the opioid crisis. And number two, the criminal justice system. 
Last year alone, we lost about 100,000 people to an overdose on opioids or another synthetic drug. The legalization of cannabis can immediately help this horrible, horrible opioid epidemic. Lastly, the war on drugs needs to end with sensible criminal justice reform. We need to address the fact that the imprisonment of more than 40,000 Americans incarcerated still for activities that are now legal in a significant portion of the country. Well, I wonder what kind of people do you have to deal with then? I mean, when I was a kid, we'd drive down to Athens County in Ohio or out to Humboldt County in California, and there was a pretty shady group of grow ops um, in those places. You did not want to tread on someone else's farm. Has that changed significantly? You know, there is a ton of black market still going on today. They're estimating in California alone that the black market is somewhere between two to five X the legal market. That range of two to five is just so massive considering the legal market in California is tracking to be four billion. So you really just have endless black market cultivators and endless black market producers at this point. Um, what's going on back there of theft and, and stealing from farms and security is uh, it's definitely a slippery slope. And again, we're pretty grateful that we are nowhere near uh, what's going on in, in some of those parts of the country in particular. What about the um, the, the quality and the strength, Alex, of the, of the weed that you guys are getting today? I mean it has steadily increased to a point where um, you got to be careful if you want to smoke a joint, uh, especially if you're an older person. Is that going to be easier to measure and easier to decipher? Yeah. So think about like alcohol again, to compare as you get, as we grow older, you go into some of these super stores, these mega stores and the product variety just ranges from, from lower and lower quality and, and $2 bottles of wine at select stores to thousands and thousands of bottles of wines at some stores. So I think the same thing is going to happen with cannabis over time. We're going to see, uh, we're going to see products going again, a little bit towards a race to the bottom on, on the value products. And then we're going to have continuously higher and higher end products. What you see on the, what the first part of your question, what's happening right now is one of the only data points associated to cannabis is the THC percentage that the consumer sees. When you go buy cannabis or flour, as we call it in the industry, there's a numerical value associated to that test, that strain from that batch. They usually mm. range between, let's say, 15 and 30%. But if you watch what happens in a, in a given dispensary on a given day, these, these, uh, these people come in, these, uh, a construction worker after work or um, a, an electrician after work, and they have a $20 bill in their hand, and they say, how far can I take this $20 bill? What is the highest high I can get from this 20 In In comparison, again, to alcohol, what's happening is Everclear is being valued at a higher quality product than, let's say, a blue label. Just because Everclear has a higher alcohol content, it doesn't mean it's a better product than Blue Label. No. And unfortunately, in the cannabis market, it, it's just not as educated and not as sophisticated yet. And so the Blue Label yeah. is literally selling for less money than the Everclear. And that's part of what I'm trying to do every day is, is help educate yeah. and help uh, everyone understand. All right. That there's Alex Pasternak there from Binsk. Thanks very much. This is Bloomberg. Now, we got earnings out today um, from a number of retailers, and we're going to continue to get them out over the next couple of sessions from more. Walmart um, coming out 
this morning and um, giving uh, a beat in terms of its um, uh, in terms of its previous earnings uh, and and raising its uh, outlook in terms of its forward earnings. And then we had Home Depot, which disappointed. I want to bring in Katie Thomas. She is the lead at cons- uh, the Kearney Consumer Institute out of Pittsburgh to talk about retail because it's going to be such a huge theme this week. Katie, first off, what's your reaction to what we saw already? You know, honestly, I would say I'm not that surprised that Walmart and some of the big box retailers really stand to benefit from some of the trends we've been seeing with consumers. So they're set up to benefit in all the right ways. In Q2, we were seeing them return to stores. The store is king. As much as we hear about convenience, when we talk to consumers, where do you prefer to shop, especially for groceries, they still still tell us they love the store. And on top of that, in general, getting as much done in one trip as possible is still you know, relatively attractive to consumers. They're not doing as many of those quick runs to local grocery stores, but instead really focusing on the big box. How much can I get in one trip? Um, It's competitive pricing, giving some of the inflationary concerns. And so a lot of positive tailwinds for Walmart that I'm not surprised you saw flow through in those comp uh, store sales. So, uh, Katie, the omni-channel strategy where I can maybe order online, pick up at the store, that seems to maybe have been a pretty good strategy for retail. Is that something that can boost this industry going forward? Absolutely. So when we talk to consumers, they really love that as an additional option because it's really that perfect hybrid approach. So you're still physically going to the store. If you forgot something, you can run in, but especially at a store the size of a big box retailer, whether it's Walmart and Target or Best Buy, you don't have to wander through the whole store uh, either. So it's really like those those different options, the optionality that we didn't have before that consumers really are excited to take advantage of. And I think you'll continue to see it, not just in those types of stores, but as we're seeing it with mall retailers and just across the industry in general. What happened at um, Home Depot? There their uh, sales forecast is kind of hinting at a, a, a slowdown in the boom that we had seen. Is that just to be expected? I think, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, we've made the investments we were going to make in our house. Um, and, you know, Walmart really stands to benefit from that everyday consumption, whereas the Delta variant is driving just enough concern in the eyes of consumers now where what we really thought over the pandemic is people held off on buying things till they really felt like they wanted it or needed it. And so with some of those home improvement, I think it's, you know, pressing pause for right now. You're not going to see the impact of the child tax credit flow through to home improvement as much either. So it's just kind of a combination of factors that I think is having Home Depot soften a little bit. Katie, one of the themes of retail in America over the last decade or so is there's just too many stores. We're overstored here. Um, Where are we in terms of that metric? Do you think we still need to reduce the footprint of uh, the stores across the U.S.? Well, it's an interesting question. I think you're seeing a lot of, you know, uh, press around that, a lot of shift to online businesses, all of that. But the challenge there is direct-to-consumer businesses that are online only really have a challenge with eyeballs and footprints. So, you know, in fact, you're seeing some of these big box retailers make those strategic partnerships, uh, Target with Ulta, Kohl's with Sephora, and with the D2C smaller brands. So it's hard to say. Consumers really like to get out there and shop. 
Um, I think it's really what we called the, at the beginning of the pan pan pandemic, what you saw was the death of the middle. So it was really some of those middle of the road retailers that lost their value to consumers. Then, you know, consumers do have so many options nowadays. You're just not ultimately going to be successful unless you have a real value offering and differentiation. Does the Delta virus, does the Delta variant of the virus offer any severe headwinds? I don't think so, no. If anything, I'm, I'm more concerned about some of the shifts we're going to see in the labor market, the flow through of the supply chain. Right now, you're seeing a little bit of an uptick in avoidance of stores, but ultimately, consumers have money to spend, and they do want to spend it. It's just going to be a little bit of bumpy um, in terms of spending when they know they'll need it. I think the slowdown in the return to work is slowing that down a little bit. Again, even apparel, non-back-to-school apparel, apparel for you know adults is slowing down a little bit in the retail numbers today. And that's just, I'm going to hold off and see how things play out. Katie, real quickly, 30 seconds. Talk to us about the supply chain. Is stuff going to be on the shelves back to school and holidays? There is a certain categories where, where there are some challenges, and it's definitely on consumers' radar. We're hearing from them directly, I should buy sooner than later. But at the same time, it's, it's coming through in pocket. So it's really hard to say um, exactly what that's going to look like. And I think some of these bigger retailers are, are actually the most protected because they have so much strength in the market. So if anything, unfortunately, it's going to be some of the smaller retailers that I think are going to feel more of the impact. Katie, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Getting your thoughts here as we're in the midst of these retailer earnings. Katie Thomas, she's a lead at the Kearney uh, Consumer Institute based in Pittsburgh, PA. And again, you know, I think what a lot of investors are, are focusing on this quarter as the retailers report is kind of how is the consumer doing? Is the Delta variant uh, causing, as Matt suggested, perhaps some headwinds for some consumers and consumer spending? And so that goes to not only the results that they report, but maybe more importantly to the guidance uh, they provide. So uh, some good numbers out of Walmart, certainly a, a good indicator of the consumer there. Got a sell off in this market, as Greg was just reporting. What really jumps out at me is the uh, Russell. Uh, it is off 1.5%. So the small caps are really underperforming. Uh, and it's a good time to speak to our next guest, Brian Smolik. Principal Portfolio Manager at Hood River Capital Management. Uh, they are located in Florida like everybody else these days in the money management business. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your thoughts based upon your experience of kind of where you envision small cap stocks here. Again, underperforming today, but in a reopening, a lot of people like the small cappers. Yeah, we're constructive from here. Uh, the market's biggest concern, I think, is the impact on the Delta variant, on the economy, consumer behavior, business behavior. And we're constructive as we look out to 2022. Uh, small caps have significantly lag, lagged this year. They're about flat versus the S&P up 20%. So there's been a lot of uh, multiple compression in these names. And I think as, as we kind of go through the peaking phase here of the Delta variant, people get their booster shots, cases decline, and people come to grips that earnings need to go up. Next year, earnings, earnings estimates, then we think small caps will tend to outperform, but we're constructive on the market in general. So small caps is a big universe. Is there yep. Are there specific places that you like best? So uh, at Hood River, we're bottoms up stock pickers. So we like to see inefficiencies in stocks that, that we're buying. Uh, we aren't really making industry top-down calls, bottom bombs up basis right now. We're overweight consumer cyclical, financial, and industrial stocks. In general, those valuations are better. They're tied to more of reopening 
in the economy. And uh, I think earnings revisions are going to be good and valuations are attractive. And I'd love to get your thoughts. I'm a former sell-side equity research analyst, and I know what I've been hearing a lot over the last you know, decade in particular since the financial crisis is that <clears throat> the equity research from Wall Street on small and mid-cap stocks has is, is, is really declined in, in, in terms of how many names are in fact covered. How does that impact your job on, on the buy side as you think about you know, doing research analysis on, on the names that you guys invest in? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, as you mentioned, there's been a big dislocation on the sell side uh, covering our stocks, which has made those stocks a lot more inefficient. So it's made our job easier, which is why it's been easier in general for active management to outperform in particular our product. We see that as being the case going forward. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why, why that's the case. Commissions have been tougher to come by. Uh, in general, compensation for sales analysis dropped significantly. And so it's just given us more of an opportunity to find stocks where the earnings estimates are inaccurate looking out 12, 18, 24 months. So you're looking at uh, Western Alliance, Chart Industries, Kulika, and Sofa? What, what, what do you like yeah, about so these companies those are, specifically? Those, those, are, those are some of the names that we like. We like Western Alliance. Uh, it's a regional bank that trades at around 12 times earnings. The street has about $9.40 for next year. We think that's really low as they continue to grow loans and the north of 12% range. Uh, we like chart industries, as you mentioned. It's an infrastructure provider for all sorts of chemicals and gases. And what's growing the fastest there is hydrogen. And there's big demand for green hydrogen as as the economy more moves to more sustainable energy, and it's relatively inexpensive, especially in comparison to other hydrogen plays like plug power. And Kulik and Sofa is a semiconductor capital equipment company. Specifically, they make wire bonding equipment, and that's, uh, as you've seen in the news all over the place, there's been a big shortage there. They had great earnings, uh, and they guided to a little north of $2 per share next quarter and the street was at a dollar so obviously that stock's been acting well and it's still cheap at around 12 times earnings there as well so brian broadly speaking when you look at the small cap universe is give us a sense of kind of where we are in terms of historical valuations because on the s p 500 you know a lot of fund managers will come on here and say boy it's a 20 times forward earnings that's yes that's right. high but interest rates are so low so you know right. it's not that right. big of an issue how do you think about valuations in small cap land yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, relative multiples have compressed significantly. So what I tend to look at is the the earnings, the positive earnings companies in the index and what the valuation is there versus the benchmark. And right now that's at parity with the S&P. It's about 20 times next year's earnings. And there's always this large swath of non-earnings companies like biotech, and it's a little bit harder to, to take a sw swag at that, but we usually are underweight that area. So that's one of the reasons why I like small cap is that when you look at the relative valuation versus the S&P and the higher growth and the uh, higher concentration of domestic focus here in the U.S., I, I think it can outperform. What's your screening technique? What do you do uh, to start looking at these companies bottoms up? So most of it is just organically talking to a ton of companies. We talked to around 400 companies, publicly traded every single quarter. 
So really, it's just putting together a mosaic in terms of how the business is doing and comparing that versus where the street's doing. And obviously, we want, those are businesses that we want to be a part of long term. We're looking for companies that are growing north of 15% that have leading market share uh, they're that in an industry that's growing. And most importantly, have a management team that's going to deliver. We do have some screens that look at the fundamental data and the odds of them exceeding analyst estimates over the next 12 and 24 months. That's re- But that's really more as a stopgap. Again, mm-hmm. it just comes down to just having a lot of conversations and talk to a ton of people. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Brian Smolik there is the principal and portfolio manager at Hood River Capital Management coming to us out of Florida. Of course, he's had a long career in banking. Started at Solly. This is Bloomberg. Now let's get back to RTO. Uh, We haven't talked about returning to the workplace over the past couple of sessions here. Let's bring in Sean Lyons, Global Chief Executive Officer at RGA. Sean, are we are we looking at a future where it basically goes back to the past? Are we going to all eventually go back to our offices, get back on planes, start our long commutes, and just forget about the the hybrid work that we did over the last couple of years? Well, hi, Paul. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me on. I hope not. I really hope not. I think there's uh, too much binary thinking right now in terms of back to office, all remote. I think there's a real benefit of of how we've all worked in the past year and a half. I think there's tremendous benefit to the technology we've, we've used, to the diversity of talent we've been able to pull into the company. So I'm, we're, we're all in on hybrid, and I'm all in on the actual long-term benefits of a hybrid model, which I think, you know, while maybe require a lot of thought and, and, and uh, burden on management to manage, I think the benefits in the long term are just going to be tremendous. So we're, we're, we're fully embracing it. Yeah, it's interesting. Here in New York City, and obviously at Bloomberg, we focus a lot on the big financial institutions. Uh, they were talk. Some of them were talking a big game about getting people back in full time, all the time, and they've since pushed back some of those dates. What are you seeing out there from some of the the, the leading companies about how they're thinking about their you know back to work? Yeah, I mean, I think we. I think generally there's a, like I mentioned, there's some short-term thinking happening right now. There's, a, there's some fear involved in, in this, which is how do I make sure I can monitor the productivity of my employees? How do I make sure that everybody can work together and build team chemistry? Because we know how that works in an office environment. It's, it's a little bit more unknown when you think about it from, from a hybrid or remote environment. But we actually like to think about it as like, well, how do we look at this creatively? Where's the opportunities in here where we can actually attract more talent uh, in more places? We're in some of the you know, biggest cities in the world, be 15 locations. Some of them are quite expensive to live in. We now have an opportunity to hire from more broadly, so we're looking at that as an opportunity, I think. But I do think some of this is just based on the, the, the concern and fear uh, that leadership has on making sure they can keep uh, everything going, make the machine work, and make sure people are engaged at work every day. Um, I'm not really that, that, that concerned with that. I think that people are happier when they have a choice, and I think having a physical environment that they can go to and work in, because that's important, but and also having the opportunity to work remotely uh, at home or somewhere else is, is equally beneficial. So we find it as a, a tremendous advantage for us. You have, over your 20-year or so career, worked with, at RGA and Havas, huge clients, IBM, um, Hershey's, Nike, Liberty. Liberty, Liberty. Um, <laughs> where do you see the biggest success stories in terms of current workforce model? 
You know, I, I haven't actually looked at different models to try to follow. I've actually looked at what we need to do. And I've done that deliberately because I think this is so new. Uh, it's so new in terms of where we can actually learn from. The last year and a half has been remote work only. Nobody would design it that way alone. But you really need, do need to think about how you can do the great physical environment where you bring people together and also then uh, kind of combine that with, with great digital tools so people can collaborate and work remotely together. Um, but what we found is that our relationships with our clients in many ways have gotten better uh, when we've worked in this way. There's more frequent communication. There's less burden on that one trip you need to take for a two-hour meeting, which everybody understands doesn't make sense anymore. So the, this hybrid work model, remote work, has actually, I think, improved client relationships. They've been quite flexible. We're actually going to monitor what each of our clients is doing as we go along uh, to make sure we understand how they're, uh, they're going to uh, roll out their plans. But I think for us, it'll be an advantage for us, but also for them because they're going to get to work with a, a kind of broader and more diverse team. And sometimes that means, you know, time shifting where we have teams working in the U.S. for a set number of hours and we can shift the work over to, to Asia Pacific to continue that work. So there's benefits to, to, uh, to the model that we're hopefully going to bring to our clients. Hey, Sean, just 30 seconds. Um, what do you think is the ideal model? Well, I look at e-commerce as a great example here, right? So we, everybody's been used to being in the office for what? 60, 70 years, just the same kind of method of work where everybody shows up nine to five. I really think if you look at the sweeping changes that happened in, in digital commerce over the past 20 years, how it forced evolution in retail. So the retail uh, was hit by that. We know that. But it also forced companies to think about what their retail environment and spaces was about. Right. Not just about shopping, it should be an experience. So I do believe this is going to require innovation within the physical workspace that's going to benefit everybody. Right. And that's what I see as, as the biggest change. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective here on a really key topic for corporate America. Sean Lyons, Global Chief Executive Officer for RGA. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.